What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is June 10th today. We're recording on a different day than usual. It's Thursday for me. Usually we, we do a Friday, Saturday, Sunday maybe, so switching it up a little. Yep. Different vibe. <laughs> it's Friday for Olivia though, so <laughs> lucky her. We're switching it up because I'm going away for the weekend, which should be exciting. Cold here, freezing weather, but exciting. <laughs> How cold is freezing? Um, let me just do the Fahrenheit conversion because we use Celsius. Because I bet by my standards, it's not freezing. No, well, actually, they reckon like yesterday was the coldest day in, I think, 20, 21 or 25 years or something like that. So it's really? currently 45 degrees here, which is pretty cold it's like, for us. It's like a nice autumn day for us. <laughs> I think yesterday it was like a high of 45 or 48 or something, which is unheard of. Usually it gets to... Like I've just looked and the rest of the week is going to be 63, 65. So that's generally like a normal winter temp here. But yesterday it was just absolutely freezing. So sad that the pandemic ruined your winter trip to New York where you <sighs> would be very cold. <laughs> and even like we've been talking about when we're going to do it again because we've now spent all the money that we had saved. But um, they're not even opening the borders here, I don't think, until mid next year. So maybe 2022 Christmas, maybe we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Such a long time well, away. It'll still be cold. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> so last week with all of our complaining about how many updates there were and how something always happens right after we finish recording Nothing and how happened. something was definitely going to happen mm-hmm. again right when we finished recording. Mm-hmm. I think there's been absolutely zero updates on anything at all. The only update is Lori Vallow, um, and she's been committed to a mental health facility. It says uh, Vallow will be committed to the custody of the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare for care and treatment at an appropriate facility for no more than 90 days. So that's not a surprise. We knew that was coming, but that has happened, it seems. Um, so there's not really much else, you know, going oh, and on in Chad- that case. Chad submitted his not guilty plea, yes. but also not shocking. Yeah, also not shocking. Not even really worth a mention because we knew that was going to happen too. But anyway. Yeah, maybe an update, maybe not an update, just something I saw in passing that someone bought the the Tote family oh, house yes. for like 700 something thousand dollars, which seems like a lot for, for a house that uh, a bunch of people were murdered in. But And it was for sale for a while, I think. But I wonder what they originally wanted price-wise would be interesting to know. Maybe they got what they wanted. Yeah, I guess it's more expensive just because it's in that weird celebration area, which <laughs> seems just to be pricey. But I mean, the house didn't really seem overly exciting to me. No, it, like it was fine. It was a nice house, but yeah, I don't. I think you'd think there would be a price reduction for what happened in it. But yeah, you know. I just feel like it seems high for what it is, kind of to begin with, and especially since um, some kids and their mom were murdered in it mm, and lay there for. A week yeah, and left in there in the heat. Mm-hmm. But congrats to those people. Everyone always says, would you have an issue issue, issue living in a murder house? I wouldn't, I don't think. You could cleanse it and all that stuff. But I, like, I, I, I don't know, maybe the tote house might be different. But, like, you know, I'm sure there are so many people who don't know what's actually gone on in their own homes before they yeah. lived there. So I don't really, you know, I would find it a bit fascinating, really. <laughs> Might be able to get a bargain. I don't think it would bother me. I think, I mean, maybe it's because just like interesting to me that I might even prefer it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it would bother me. They add a search thing in Zillow and all the house things. Is this a murder house? <laughs> yes or no? Well, I guess I'm, I 
It's probably something that's obvious to some people, but I feel like when I was reading about that, that I heard that some states you don't have to disclose that like a murder or whatever happened there. Yeah, I don't know. I think it varies state to state. So I don't know if you do here either. Uh, I don't know. I'll have to look into that. But I know that you definitely don't have to do it everywhere. Yeah, because I think I saw that in Florida that you don't have to disclose it. So imagine the people who bought it like didn't even know somehow. And I wonder if they ever Googled. Someone's, we bought a house in December and someone's like, did you Google it? And I'm like, actually, I didn't Google it, but I did after that. <laughs> and there was nothing there, thank God. But yeah, I wonder if everyone Googles and searches for the house they're going to buy. I feel like that one was so well-known that the people must have known about it. But you never know. Some people live totally under a rock. So imagine moving in and then finding that out. (laughs) Imagine just like moving across the country and thinking, well, we found this amazing house. And then, yeah, from like the middle of Iowa, like you don't get a lot of news and (laughs) we'll see if it goes back up for sale soon. That'll be interesting. So the other thing, because we don't have a lot of actual crime updates today, I just thought we'd thank everyone for their really lovely reviews. Um, We've had some really you know, kind ones lately. Kind ones always make our day. I'll just read out the two most recent ones. There's one from Karina and it says, I just discovered this podcast today while researching the Tote family murders. They covered it really well and I'm so happy I found a new true crime podcast to listen to. And she's from Malaysia, so that's a pretty cool different thing. We've had a few reviews from Malaysia, which I never, I don't think we've had before. Yeah, I, I always think it's funny when it comes up on some random, yeah, some random trailer. I swear <sighs> it was I saw like Kuwait and yes. I was like, okay. And I think we're on Nigeria <laughs> once as well, which is interesting. I wonder um, how accurate it is. And the other one is just from 1358, so not from a name, but seriously love this podcast. Stephanie and naturally me and Olivia have kept me sane through not only COVID, but my husband's deployment. You all are the best. Thank you. So that's really sweet. Whenever you get nice reviews, I'm just like, are they sure? Are they talking about the right podcast? Is it my mom? Is my mom writing this? <laughs> I know. I'm like, did my mom make another Apple account to leave me a review? <laughs> That's lovely. So thank you to those lovely, kind people. Yeah. Leave us some more good reviews because yeah. sometimes people are fresh. We actually haven't gotten really many bad reviews for a while now. No. Sometimes people will leave us some criticism, like one of us talks too fast, which is probably me, but... <laughs> And I know I talk fast, so I'll I'll try to keep it under control. But we're, we're all just, doing our best. I'm a speed talker. Yeah. <laughs> Another side note, um, kind of has to go with having imposter syndrome about having a podcast. There was some work drama, and I did some googling to look someone up, and like all I did was like a basic name search. And one of my other coworkers was like, "How did you find out this information?" I was like, "I don't know. I just googled them." <laughs> but then it got people talking about it because you know we're just gossiping and it came out that i have a podcast and now all they do is ask me about the podcast (laughs) and they're like we want to listen to the podcast i'm like no i don't want you to listen to the podcast i'm like it's it's not that good like it's okay like it's not great they all like start listening to it i just like want to light myself on fire so if any of my coworkers are listening hey love you guys thanks for being here I was telling you the other week how I was at my kid's sport and someone came up to me, hi, Jody, if you're listening again, and said, oh, I love your podcast. It still blows my mind that people actually listen voluntarily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not forced like our husbands and partners. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy to me. It's like, I guess... With any artistic endeavor, you're always just like, well, it's not that good. (laughs) I feel like I I missed making the connection. This is my problem. Like, I start talking and then I kind of, like, forget the point I'm making. But because I did the Google search, people were like, some people who know that I like crime, they're like, oh, it's because Stephanie likes crime. She's always investigating. Like, she has a podcast. So that's why the Googling and the podcast came up together. You must be a really good Googler. (laughs) 
I'm an amazing Googler. <laughs> All right. Anyways, enough just random bullshit. For this episode this week, we're going to talk about three different Jane Doe cases. Um, they're all ones that, as usual, Olivia found because she <laughs> is the queen of all these things. The queen of dead people. <laughs> the queen of all things dead. Um I'm actually, like, not – I've never been a huge Jane Doe, John Doe person. I, don't, I think it kind of has to go with how I don't – not that I don't love cases that aren't solved, but I'm always just like, oh, I want to know what happens. And I think some other people feel the same way. Yeah. That's why I think the Jane and John Doe cases are very interesting. But then I'm always like, okay, but now what? But these <laughs> cases, I – was reading them and they're super interesting so i think everyone's gonna like them um i've never heard of any of them but there's a lot of weird twists and turns to these cases kind of like the one kind of like the episode we did last week with like what the fuck disappearances these are what the fuck jane does yeah i know it's just crazy it still blows my mind that and i know like the ones that we're talking about today are a little bit older so that might explain why they're still not identified but it just blows my mind that people can be unidentified like even mostly harmless that we've spoken about in our other podcast that took years mm-hmm. for him identified and there was photos there was you know everything of him so it's just crazy that um some people are never identified yeah that was very modern day modern times Mm. so for anyone who doesn't know john doe and jane doe are names that can be used when the true name of a person is unknown or it's been concealed in the context of law enforcement in the u.s such names are often used to refer to a corpse whose identity is unknown or unconfirmed I tried to have a look and see if I could find stats for how many does there are. And the main one I could find is that in the USA at any time, there are approximately 40,000 unidentified people, which is crazy. I know a lot of those people are probably identified after a month or two or, you know, a short time, but there are a lot. Like if you go into NamUs or into, you know, even the Los Angeles Medical Examiner Coroner site, you can look at all the unidentified people on there and there's heaps. It's crazy. Oh, there'd be more than 40,000. Did you yeah, I don't know. For some reason, I thought it was like some astronomical number. <laughs> but I guess you're right. Like they identify people and then they get taken out. And the other thing is that there's also another kind of distinction, which is unclaimed people. That's another kind of category. So that's people who they know their name and they know general information about them, but they've died and no one has either claimed the body or they can't find any relatives to claim the mm-hmm. body. So that's kind of another um, category. Yeah. So the cases we're going to, co- co- going to cover today are the Annandale Jane Doe, Mary A. Anderson, and Jennifer Fairgate. The first one is the Annandale Jane Doe. The death of this Jane took place in December 1996 in Annandale, Virginia, which is that, hence her very original name of Annandale Jane Doe. Sometimes they give them a, um, just off as an aside to Doe's, they give them a name based on where they were found so or what they were wearing. So, you know, they yeah. might say like Calico Jane Doe if she was found in a Calico bag or you know, things like that. So they usually give them a name based on the circumstances of their death. Mm-hmm. So it's December 18, nearly Christmas time in 1996. A groundskeeper at the Pleasant Valley Memorial Park Cemetery was doing their daily rounds and checking that everything was neat and tidy. Also, as another aside, just before we get into it, we've got a blog on all these cases and I'll put photos up of the cemetery and all this, you know, all the scenes for all the cases so you can have a look and see, you know, where everything took place. They were stopping to pick up some litter and then they noticed something very unexpected. The body of a woman was laying on the ground on a clear plastic sheet in an area of the cemetery, which is creepily called Babyland. I hate that. I know. We were just talking about it before. It sounds almost like a theme park for, you know, a happy place. I guess that's what they were going for with Babyland, a happy place where people can go and remember and honour their babies, but it's a bit creepy. 
Yeah, I get that. That's like what they're going for, but it's it's not a not the vibe it gives off. Like, <laughs> yeah, like oh, I'm in baby land where <laughs> they bury the babies. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like let it be a sad place. It's a fucking yeah. sad place. You don't got to call it baby land. <laughs> so that this section of the cemetery is obviously where children and babies are buried. Um, I've got some photos online. You can see it looks like a nice little place. There's plaques on the ground. There's a bench with an angel next to it. It looks nice enough for a cemetery. Um, next to the body, there was an eight-inch Christmas tree. Um, we've got a photo. It's little. It's green. It's got a few red kind of bows on it, maybe a few baubles, just a little basic Christmas tree. The groundskeeper called the police and they arrived to begin their investigation. They determined that this woman had died from suffocation. She put a plastic bag over her head and sealed it around her neck with tape. Once the bag was removed, the woman was found to be wearing headphones with a portable cassette player. So don't forget, this is 1996 when these things were still a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, rec- there was a tape in there and it was a recording of the comedians Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner doing their 2,000-year-old man routine. Um, I looked it up and that routine was originally from the 1950s and 60s, which may somehow provide a clue to her age. If she, you know, maybe she was aware of this routine from when she was younger. It's just, it, you know, no one obviously knows the significance because she's still unidentified, but maybe that is something that could be looked into. Um, the medical examiner carried out toxicology on the Jane Doe and determined that she consumed both brandy and Valium before her death. Her blood alcohol content was 0.14. There was also a scar found on her abdomen, and some people theorize that this may be a C-section scar. There's a photo online of the scar. It doesn't look like a C-section scar to me. It kind of goes all the way up from almost her pubic line up to kind of her under her bust. Like it looks like it looks a big... like the, the mostly harmless scar kind yeah, of. Yeah, it does. Like it's your whole like abdomen, basically. So when I was researching this, I found this comment online from I think someone who was a doctor, and they said, the scar is a laparotomy scar, not a vertical C-section. Classical cesarean sections do not extend above the umbilicus. This isn't to say she didn't have a C-section scar before her laparotomy. There are multiple reasons for a full-length laparotomy, particularly in the times prior to laparoscop- laparoscopic surgery becoming readily available. Any intra-abdominal cancer or infection would usually require such a large incision for access. So that's interesting. Mm. Um, When the lady was found, she was wearing a teal Eddie Bauer hooded jacket size medium, a navy blue classics on tier sweater size large, a red classics on tier sweater size extra large, a red classics on tier sleeveless silk shirt size petite large and that was our no sorry petite large and then navy blue classics on tier knit wool pants size large so she was wearing a lot i guess it would have been freezing knee-high stockings white bra white fruit of the loom underpants size six and black loafers size 7m police believe her clothing may have came from a department store such as nordstrom as classics on tier which i hope i'm saying correctly is a nordstrom brand I was going to say, I had no idea how to say that. And you were so confident that I was just like, all right, that's how you say it. <laughs> I did French for a minute in high school. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm right. I, I could also very well be wrong. It's close enough anyway. <laughs> um, she was also wearing jewelry, two clip-on earrings and a small gold woman's guest watch with the mesh band. She had a 14 karat gold ring with four jade stones and a medicalette bracelet that stated no code DNR, no penicillin. They found some bifocals with translucent frames amongst her stuff, a green knapsack that held <clears throat> Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck cassette, a tape of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, so she really liked comedy tapes. 
Mm. Two empty juice bottles, a red scarf and a new roll of masking tape were also found. There's a photo online of the juice bottles. You can see in one of them it looks like there's a little bit of residue. I wonder if that this is how she kind of transported her brandy, maybe. I remember uh, those gross mystic drinks. I don't know if they're still a thing, but I remember they used to be pretty popular. And I don't know, they were, one of my older friends used to drink them all the time. And they're very um, concentrated juice. Yeah, like sweet and syrupy. Yeah, like thick. Mm. Um, the woman also left notes and money um, with her staff. One note was addressed to the cemetery and the other was to the coroner. In each envelope, there was a $50 bill and a typed note reading, deceased by own hand, prefer no autopsy. Please order cremation with funds provided. Thank you, Jane Doe. So she actually called herself a Jane Doe. Yeah. When I was first reading this, because I hadn't you know, heard of the case before, I was like, wow, it's really bold of a murderer to just be like, no autopsy, please. <laughs> and I know some people have theorized that this was a murder. I don't think it was. But, you know, imagine if it was, that's a very bold thing to do. I don't think so after going through the whole thing. But mm. I was just like, wow, imagine like murdering someone and just being bold enough to write a note like, <laughs> killed myself, please no autopsy. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they also found a typewritten poem with her belongings. They ha- Investigators haven't been able to kind of determine if anyone wrote it so they think she may have written it herself and there's a photo of it it says now I lay me down to sleep soon to drift to the eternal deep and though I die and shall not wake sleep see- sleep sweeter will be than this life I forsake there was no other paperwork or ID found with her body the poem seems kind of like a variation of a more popular poem or nursery rhyme do you know yeah. which one I now mean? is it like now I lay me down I lay to sleep, me down I to sleep pray I my pray soul the Lord. yeah yeah something like mm. that it just yeah. seems like a, a remix of it it did remind me of that too because at first I was like this is not written by her and then I was like no it's different one other kind of unusual item was that was found with her thing was was a mini mouse themed fanny pack it's bright pink there's photos of it up on the blog. It was very well worn. It was kind of falling apart and had been mended with masking tape and safety pins. So it's interesting that she had this with her. You know, it's obviously not worth any money, but maybe it had sentimental value to her and maybe it provides some type of clue as to why she took her life in the children's area of the cemetery. Um, maybe it belonged to someone who, you know, a child that passed away. So Jane is estimated to have been between 50 to 70 years old. She was five foot tall and weighed 157 pounds. Her hair was curly and a copper red color. We made a blog post about this case a few years ago. And when I was going back, I remembered that one of the groundskeepers who actually found the doe commented on there. And I've just put his comment in. It says, wow, just came across this article on this woman. I found her at Pleasant Valley Memorial on December 18, 1996. At the time, my aunt was the manager and needed a job out of high school. I and another great keeper found, groundskeeper found her. I will never forget that day. It's sad they still don't know who she is. And then I asked him if he had any more information that he could share. And he wrote back and he said, on that morning when I and Donald found her, we were on the golf cart and drove right past her. She was located in the landscaping bed next to the mausoleum that was next to Babyland. It seems to me that she was trying to hide behind the bushes. We walked up to her and she was laying there with a plastic bag over her head. It seemed to be keeping her hair from not getting wet. I always wonder why she picked that spot. I would understand more if she left a name and passed away on top of a grave. There was no vehicles at the cemetery. There is a bus stop on Route 236 and drops off in front and across Nova College. My mind wonders about her every Christmas. So I know since then, lots of people have been asking him to come back and give more information and he hasn't come again. And there's actually some good discussion in the comments about theories and who um, other people think this lady might be. So you can go on there and check them out. But 
Someone actually posted an interesting comment and it said that they did research on all the graves in the cemetery and they found one for a child, Brandy Ray Ballard, who died on the same day, December 18, uh, 1989 though, so seven years before this Jane Doe died. And I found her obituary online. It says, Brandy Ray Ballard, nine of Woodbridge, died Monday, December 18, 1989 at Fairfax Hospital. She's survived by her mother, Carmen Ballard of Woodbridge, two sisters and one brother, her grandparents. Brandy was a former student at Armstrong Elementary, Reston. Services were held at noon today, and then it just goes on about burial follows in Pleasant Valley Memorial Park. Um, I don't – I had a look to see if I could find any more information about Brandy. I couldn't see if her mother was still alive or if – I did see her mother was mentioned in another – obituary but we know in you know based on mostly harmless too that sometimes people include people in an obituary if they haven't been in touch with the family so I guess it is possible maybe I don't know if it's just a coincidence but if it is a coincidence it's a pretty crazy one the exact same day same cemetery who knows I just feel like it would have been I don't know how much effort they put into trying to figure it out but I just feel like that at the time would have been easier to figure out I did read some online comments that police apparently went through every single grave in the children's area and did checks on every single family member, but I find that very hard to believe. I feel like there wouldn't be enough resources given to identifying this woman to do that amount of work. Imagine going and trying tracking down every grandparent or every mother of every child in that cemetery. I don't think they would have done that. I could be wrong. Who keeps that information? Like, do they have like specific contact information? I guess you have to for each grave site. Yeah, I don't know. And like, like even like there's photos online of the graves and like one says, Kelly Marie Burke, we love you, mummy and daddy. So like some of the graves, obviously they would know, I'm assuming, but some of them don't have any other details. Um, yeah. Like there's one even in Spanish. So who knows how yeah. they do that. So as of June 2021, this Jane Doe is still unidentified. I have just so many questions. Why did she choose this cemetery? You know, I wonder if they investigated how she got to the cemetery. Did anyone see her on public transport? Um, I'm assuming there was no car left there abandoned. So there must, you know, it's it's a shame, a shame, you know, can't help it. But if it happened today, they probably would have been able to trace her steps more kind of backtrack, look through CCTV. So I was just going to say, it's just like a sign of how different times are now because you could have, how the person said they're, was a bus stop or something they could have like tracked her back to like cameras on that and then yeah. maybe use the bus information so it is a lot easier now to not be a jane doe or yeah. john doe but i guess it wasn't as simple back then and i'm assuming now probably cemeteries have cameras and most of them you would think you know to stop vandalism and things like that so um it's a shame that this happened before you know I don't yeah I don't think she would still be a Jane Doe if this happened today maybe yeah my questions are did she bring the plastic sheet in the beginning it says that she was on a plastic sheet like it's a weird thing to have yeah and I guess maybe you know she didn't know how long it would take her maybe she just wanted to be as comfortable as she could be while she was dying. I don't know, but she sounds like she was very prepared. She had the whole roll of masking tape, which I'm assuming is what she used to tie the bag around her neck. And she also fixed the fanny pack with the masking tape. So I don't know. It seems like this was obviously planned out for a while before she did it. My next question is about the Christmas tree. Was that just (laughs) there? Did she bring it? It was a baby Christmas tree. So maybe it was meant for like, it was December. So maybe someone put it on the kids' graves, but I don't know. It would be weird if she brought it 
When you look at the area, the, the plaques are quite little. Some of them have like a little, I guess, I don't know what the right terminology is, but like a hole to put the, you know, the cemetery gives you the vase and you stick it in the hole. Yeah. So I don't know when these photos were taken online, but there's no Christmas trees, but I, like there's flowers. So it wouldn't surprise me if um, at Christmas time people went and decorated the graves. Yeah, cause it said it was what, an eight inch Christmas tree. Mm. So it seems like well, it'd be easier to tell if we knew like, where her body like specifically was like was it just close to a grave that had the little christmas tree or i know i'd love to know which grave like they said it was you know and I've, there's a photo which i'll put on the blog too of the mausoleum and the tree so i'm assuming she was kind of at the back of the children's section not actually near a grave but i figure there must have been some reason why she picked that spot maybe she had a child who died somewhere else and she just felt comfort being in the cemetery you know um i don't know i, I figure there must be some significance that we don't know about yeah, and I also think it's crazy that she suffocated herself like that way. I feel like I've always heard that it's, I don't know about what or in what context, that it's really hard to like suffocate yourself or something like that because like your body reflexively like stops you. I think it would be so hard to not rip it off. Like it's just a plastic bag. I'm sure you could rip it apart. But I guess maybe um, the, the Valium helped. I'd love to know alcohol. how much Valium she took, yeah. Yeah, maybe she just took a lot of Valium, so then she didn't. Mm. I've never yeah. seen anything about the actual toxicology and how much Valium was in her system, just the blood alcohol content. So maybe she passed out and died that way. Who knows? And I think when you put the bag over your head too, because you breathe in all the, you know, air, it go, it's a quick, not quick, but a quicker yeah. death than just waiting to overdose, for example, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I've always found that one fascinating. I have so many questions. Hopefully one day we'll get some answers. I also find it strange that I've never seen if they have determined if she had a child or not. They usually can determine that in most cases, and I've never ever seen it stated whether or not she did or she didn't. I know they've said that it might have been partly a cesarean scar, um, but no one has Seems ever like confirmed. I think they'd, they'd look into it considering she killed herself in, in a kid's section. section. Yeah. So I don't even think there's been any updates in that. Some of them, the other cases might have a little bit going on, but there doesn't seem to be much happening in this one. Hopefully someday someone will put their DNA in a system and hers will be there too and they'll be able to figure it out because I think that's probably the only way that it's going to be solved. Yeah, maybe one day. One day. So the next one we're going to talk about is Mary Anderson. She kind of has a name, like a mm -hmm. fake name, but we'll get into that. So this one is also from 1996, which was apparently a big year for Doe's, mm. but this one was in Seattle, <laughs> other side of the country. So on Wednesday, October 9th, 1996, a woman called the Hotel Vintage Park in Seattle to reserve a room. And as a side note for anyone who likes to Google things like we do, the yep. hotel's now called the Kimpton Hotel Vintage Seattle. I'm such a creep. Anytime I see, you know, someone died at home or someone, I always look it up <laughs> just so I can yeah. know exactly what they're talking about. <laughs> You got to like set set the scene. <laughs> this is how the hotel is described now, which is similar to how it was in 1996. And it seems like a pleasant place. A delightful downtown Seattle hotel. Think of your favorite tasting room. It probably serves as a social hub with a communal vibe and some lovely wine to drink. Now add in contemporary design, plush beds, and a prime location on Fifth Avenue in downtown Seattle. And you've got an idea of what Kimpton Hotel Vintage Seattle has to offer. Pop the top on, stay here, and you'll be in for the best of all worlds experience you can't get anywhere else. Sounds nice. Very snappy. <laughs> so the woman arrived by cab at the hotel about an hour and a half after she called. She had two bags with her and paid $350 cash to stay two nights. 
So upon check-in, she listed her name as Mary A. Anderson. She gave a New York City address and phone number. The phone number she gave was 212-569-5549. Give it a call, see what happens. (laughs) And the address was 132 East 3rd Street, New York, New York, 11103. So that zip code and the area code are actual codes corresponding to different areas of New York City in Queens and in Manhattan. So then the street number and the street that she used, 132 East 3rd Street, is a valid address if it's used with zip codes for Manhattan or Brooklyn, which would be 1009 or 111218. So the address that she gave was close to being real, but I guess it's not real with that zip code that she gave. But it shows that she probably had some familiarity with the New York Manhattan area. So some reports said that there were hesitation marks on the hotel register where she wrote down this information, which led some people to believe that she made the name Mary A. Anderson up on the spot. I'd like to see what that looks like, like what yeah, me too. a hesitation mark looks like. Like, who saw it? <laughs> Why can't I see it? So the hotel employee who checked her in said that there was nothing really remarkable about Mary. She didn't have an accent. There's nothing unusual about her. But they did recall that she had a lovely manicure and she seemed well-groomed. She had an expensive-looking olive green woven leather purse. Um, So for two days, there was no reports of anyone seeing her leave the room. She didn't order room service and she wasn't seen in the lobby or around the hotel either. At some point, it seems that she put the do not disturb sign on her door, probably when she first got there, since there's no sightings of her, really. So then it seems that she put on a pink Estee Lauder lipstick that was later found in the room and combed her hair neatly. She wrote a note on the hotel stationery that said, To whom it may concern, I have decided to end my life and no one is responsible for my death, Mary Anderson. P.S. I have no relatives. You can use my body as you choose. Maybe so another not, weird note. The, the same serial killer. <laughs> yeah, this guy's just leaving <laughs> vague notes everywhere. Mm-hmm. After that, she mixed cyanide with metamucil, which is super no. random. Like, Why wouldn't you mix it with something delicious? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like make yourself suffer mix it with the vodka even more. <laughs> I, I wrote this down a little further, but one cyanide poisoning is like a rough way to fucking go mm. which i learned from um all the research i've done in the past on jonestown and then metamucil is just gross <sighs> whatever she mixed the cyanide with metamucil and opened the hotel king james bible to how do you say this word psalm, i can never say psalm, it psalm, psalm just, <laughs> it's just like one of those psalm. words that always like hurt my head um, so, yeah, she opened the Bible to Psalm 30, 30, 23. <laughs> psalm 23. Okay. And that is a Psalm of David. And it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's yay. 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 <laughs> Listen, I'm not really religious. I'm struggling. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll just find a clip of this because. Yeah, that might be a better idea. <laughs> so after that, she put on black clothing, black slippers, and reclined on the bed with the Bible open on her chest, and she drank the cyanide metamucil concoction. When it says she reclined, I've always kind of pictured her as, you know, like lying with her head kind of up on the bed rest. So she was kind of half sitting, half. So I was thinking too, because. I don't know if that's right, because. I was trying. 
to like reward it how I would say things better. And at first I was like, oh, she laid on the bed. And then I was like, well, if she's drinking that, I don't think she's laying. So she's probably kind of like sitting up, lounging on the bed. But that's yeah. what I thought too. Like, you know, when you fall asleep, uh, like a, for an image with like a book on your chest, that's what I just imagined. You fall, you know, you've been sitting up a little bit and you fall asleep with the book on your chest. Yeah, like you're just chilling. Cyanide poisoning, it's a rough way to go. So it's really a weird choice for her to make, especially since I'm pretty sure you can't just get cyanide. Like it's difficult to get. So I just looked up some things about it and it says, it is not in any way painless death. First, your entire body starts to convulse. Your mouth fills with a mixture of saliva, blood, and vomit. Then you pass out and then you die. Your body is deprived of oxygen completely. It's a horrific death. And another um, quote that I saved was, many people who die by cyanide poisoning will convulse and go in and out of consciousness several times before they die. Usually there's an intense feeling of suffocation or need for air, even though the lungs are still contracting and expanding. As cells are damaged, they produce lactic acid, which results in acidosis. Have you ever ridden a bike so hard that your legs begin to burn and ache? The sensation similar, but spread throughout your entire body. The pain is said to be comparable to a massive heart attack. Tetany or strong muscle contractions would soon follow. Directly preceding death, the body releases a burst of adrenaline. So like in the pictures at Jonestown, like you could see some of the body, like all your muscles like tense up. So your like body ends up for a while before you like get over it, like all like curled up and like your fingers are bent. Like you're kind of like just misshapen because it makes you convulse and like tense so much. With this lady, I've never ever read that, you know, because, you know, like it sounds like it would be a horrific scene for anyone to come across. Like I'm assuming there would be vomit, there'd be, you know, whatever, but they've never ever released that. It just sounds like it looked very peaceful, um, whether or not yeah, they just, just didn't weird. release the gory details. That could also be true. But Yeah, maybe they weren't as graphic back in mm. 1996. <laughs> but, I mean, considering you're choosing how to kill yourself, I feel like there's definitely easier ways to go. So Mary was due to have checked out of the hotel by noon on October 11th. When she failed to do this, a hotel employee was sent to check on her, but the lock on the door was deadbolted, which if you're a true crime fan, you learn that's never <laughs> a good sign in a hotel and someone is probably dead inside. <laughs> the lock had to be bypassed by management and engineers. And when they finally got, you'd think they would have a better workaround for that, but when they finally got into the room, Mary was dead on the bed. So there's an interesting article about the case called The Cipher in Room 214 that this information following comes from. It said, when police arrived, they found the room neat and orderly, half a dozen stretch velour separates and hues of emerald green, fuchsia, navy, and black hanging in the closet. She had a cobalt blue Himalaya outfitter's jacket and black leather gloves from Nordstrom. Her purse contained $36.78 in cash, but no ID, no key, no credit cards. She had packed slippers for comfort. She was size 10. Police noted her final coordinates as, quote, head to the west, feet to the east, like a ship gone down at sea. There were, according to official reports, no signs of a struggle. So investigators conducted an autopsy on her, and they discovered that at some point she had breast surgery, which was most likely a breast reduction, that she had a copper IUD. The IUD part number had worn away over the years, so they couldn't see that, and they could tell that she had never given birth to any children. And I don't know if I'm stupid, but I, I thought that IUDs were like a newer thing. I don't know, actually. Let me Google it. Like, I wonder if it was weird to have one back then. Well, it says the history of IUDs dates back to the early 1900s. <laughs> All right. Well, come on. Hormonal. Oh, she had a copper one, but copper. Yeah. Copper IUD first use 1800s. So maybe not. Crazy. 
Copper IUD lasts up to 12 years and can serve as emergency contraceptive. It's a long time. Hmm. So they estimated her age should be between 30 to 50. She had a dental plate, slightly crooked teeth, short reddish hair, brown eyes, and was around 5'8 and 240 pounds. Um, the medical examiner's office stated that Mary had intentionally obliterated any means of identification. I don't know if I'm looking too much into that, but I'm like, what does that mean exactly? Like, just that she, like, didn't have cards with her? Or, like, did she destroy her fingerprints? <laughs> like, what does that mean? It sounds very, um, I don't know what the word is, like, hardcore. Like, she went to a massive yeah. effort. But I'm pretty sure it just means she didn't have any ID or any any way they could identify her with her things. That's what I think, too. And it sounds mm. very dramatic, because in my mm-hmm. mind, I'm like, did she rip out her teeth? Like. <laughs> Um, so they inventoried her items, and she had two luggage bags, six stretch velour outfits, olive green purse made of woven leather, cobalt blue jacket, black leather gloves, shoes, slippers, pantyhose, Estee Lauder cosmetics, perfume, an iron, a kitchen bowl, toothpaste, crystal light. She, why did she use the crystal light with the cyanide? Mm. Metamucil mixed with cyanide to facilitate her suicide. Maybe she got it pre-mixed. That's weird. And even I'm assuming the kitchen bowl she used maybe to mix the cyanide. Mm. Like I'm assuming maybe you probably need to mix it in metal or like I'm my, I, I know I'm just, I'm no scientist. I don't know, but I'm assuming if you did it in plastic, it might, you know, erode the plastic or something like that. So maybe she had a metal kitchen bowl. Maybe she thought the Metamucil would make the effects of the cyanide less bad. Yeah. I don't know. There must have been some reason she picked Metamucil because other what like why? Why would you? I'm sure you could even just mix it with water, mate. Like I know it would taste horrendous, but you probably wouldn't need to drink very much. Yeah, would love to know the thinking. <laughs> um, she owned two pairs of eyeglasses, and she shopped at mid-range department stores. It seemed the brand names she wore were the Villager, which is by Liz Claiborne, which is Jennifer Dulos's aunt, if you mm. remember, yes. <laughs> and Alfred Dunner. And those were available at, I guess at the time, what was called the Bond March or at JCPenney's. So I guess since this isn't Seattle, they also investigated Canada and stuff. So in Canada, she could have bought those brands at Sears or Hudson's. Um, she preferred bright lipstick, starlight pink, or rich and rosy. She wore Estee Lauder private collection perfume. Investigators, you know, did all standard stuff, ran her fingerprints through the FBI's integrated automated fingerprint identification system. They checked with Canadian and American missing person records. They checked with Interpol and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And they even checked with cyanide manufacturers and tried tracing some of her other possessions. And they did manage to track down the Metamucil lot number and they found that it was shipped to Phoenix, but from there it could have really gone anywhere, so it was kind of another dead end. In the end, obviously, none of these tactics worked because Mary is still a Jane Doe. Jerry Webster, the former chief investigator for the King County Medical Examiner's Office, remembered a few months into the investigation that there was a copy of the Seattle Weekly in the room with a pressed maple leaf inside, which kind of seems like a big random clue to have missed or mm. forgotten about. Like that just seems like a random thing that obviously meant enough to her to kind of keep it. And carry um, it along with her. Yeah, yeah. The maple leaf might have been a clue, he said. Hmm, you don't Maybe. say. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps it was pointing to one. Based on the symbolism of the leaf, he and his team redoubled their efforts to search in Canada. As far as we know, nothing came of this. There's maple trees, like, around me. I wonder if there's not maple trees in Seattle. We were talking about this um, just off air, um, about why they kind of looked in Canada for her. And I used to live in Vancouver in Canada for a while. And we used to go to Seattle all the time. Like, it's a really easy drive. 
Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, super easy to get to, which I guess is why they looked in Canada as well because it's right near the border. But also I find the Seattle, which people might come at me for this because I don't really know the difference, but the Seattle <laughs> kind of landscape and climate is very similar to Vancouver. So it wouldn't surprise me if they also had maple trees around that area. Yeah, like I don't know if you could tell if it's – I know – now with like forensic science and all that, you could tell kind of where, where specific from. trees and stuff like that are from. But I'm, I feel like I mean, there's different types, but maple trees are pretty common around mm-hmm. here too. So they also thought that the use of cyanide as a suicide tool indicated to investigators that she was educated in that area. They looked into the possibility that she might have worked for a mining company or a chemistry lab, either medical or university, where she could have had access to getting cyanide. Because like I said, you can't just go out and buy it. It's hard to get. Um, But they came up with nothing there either. I'd love to know how she transported the cyanide. Like I'm assuming she kept it in its packaging. Like, I don't, I don't even know how cyanide is packaged, but I'm assuming that she kept it in that until she used it because it doesn't sound, <clears throat> sorry, it doesn't sound like it's something that you can easily, you know, like pour it into a container, for example. So um, I just find, and maybe, I don't know, I find it weird that they couldn't get any details on the cyanide. Yeah. So they also investigated the actual name she picked, Mary Anderson, which seems like a pretty common name to me. I feel like I have to know someone with that name. But there was a woman with the same name who invented a windscreen wiper in 1905. I I, I put that in because I found some people theorizing that maybe she picked that name because of this woman, which, and, you know, maybe that could point back to her having some type of scientific background. I don't know. But I read um, a lot of theories, too, that they say she picked the name Mary Anderson or, you know, maybe she picked the name Mary Anderson because she felt like she was invisible. It's kind of an anonymous name like John Smith or, you know, something like that. So she just picked it to kind of represent how she was feeling at the time. I suspect it's just a generic name she just picked. Yeah, if they're saying, like, earlier on, they're saying she made hesitation marks and probably came up with it on the spot. I feel like she would just, like, common first name, common last name. Like if anyone, you know, if anyone ever asks your name, like this is not the same situation I know, but like if you're in a bar and someone asks your name and you don't really want to give them your name, you're like, oh, Jane Smith, or you just make up whatever the first thing is that comes to your head. So, yeah, um, yeah, I wouldn't doubt that she probably just did that as well. Yeah, I also think with a lot of Jane Doe cases or things like this, even like we've said a few times, mostly harmless, people love to kind of like romanticize it and make it more poetic. Like, oh, she picked this name name because she felt like a nobody. But I feel like yeah. in real life, people aren't generally as poetic as we like to think they are. And like the only one I think moment. who was a little bit poetic was Lyle Stevick. And I think that's another famous doe who I'll put a link on the blog. And he picked his name based on a novel. I think he must have because it's a very unusual name. And, you know, mm-hmm. there was a, it was a Joyce Carol Oates, I think he's the author. She wrote a novel where that was the, um, one of the characters in it. So, you know, something like that, yes, absolutely, I think it has a meaning, but Mary Anderson or, you know, any of the others, no, I don't think so. Yeah. So she was buried in a Jane Doe's grave in Ballard, Washington. And there is a little bit of an update. Maybe it will eventually lead to some good news. But um, Mm. in May 2021, the King County Medical Examiner's Office partnered with Othram to use advanced DNA testing and forensic genealogy to establish identification of or to find closest living relatives to her. And those are the same people who made the break in the mostly harmless case through the genealogy. So hopefully that'll lead to an answer soon. They're doing some crowdfunding for it. They've raised $360 of the 5k needed, so they're a little short. <laughs> so feel free to, go. to check that out if you want to get some answers. Yeah. 
And that's really it with that. And mm, I was just because I don't really have any theories. I feel like she may have been from Canada. I feel like the maple leaf may be a clue, but it's a very, very cryptic clue. It's not something that you could just say, oh, well, she must be from this area. Like maybe she just thought it was a beautiful leaf and she carried it around. Um, yeah. I was wondering if maybe she traveled a little bit before that just because like she had six fucking outfits with her and, and she, she had an iron luggage well. the iron yeah. like who carries like my, i would think most hotels would give you an iron but maybe if she was traveling a lot she just wanted her own one but i'm wondering there must have been stuff that she had i mean i don't know it's not like it's not like saying like oh she had like three bras and three pairs of underwear like did she not yeah it crazy. just says that she had six stretch floor outfits her she had a blue jacket gloves shoes slippers pantyhose so it's weird because it seems like some of her like why would you have pantyhose if all you have are stretch floor outfits yeah i don't know yeah that is strange actually i've never what is a stretch floor out is it just like the two-piece like like i'm assuming you're like juicy couture like you know the, yeah. do you remember those like a tracksuit right. You know what you That's call what them there? Sweat, then I'm like, like sweatpants and a jacket but in that velour velvety stuff so i looked up stretch velour outfit and it, that's what it's showing so i just yeah, want to make that's, sure but- that's what i've always assumed it was just like a comfortable she had six comfortable outfits <laughs> but also pantyhose i wonder i would love to know what she was wearing when she checked in i've never ever seen that was she wearing one of the velour things did she i know she had said she was wearing all black so maybe she had a black velour thing i don't know very comfy mm. yeah it seems like she had a lot of makeup and she seemed like she was very well groomed and manicured and looked after herself yeah i don't know i feel like this one has no clues like the other one had kind of maybe the clue about the children's area and things like that this one is very very cryptic yeah i know it goes along the lines with what i was not complaining about but just saying that people do before of romanticizing like the things that happen and like coming up with stories but for some of these like they're so interesting that it is like interesting to come up with the story that led to this moment, like with her and the first one having such random things on them. Like, how did they get to this point? It would be interesting to yeah. like write a story about that. I feel that's why a lot of people love the Doe cases. Yeah. So the last one we're going to cover today is a little bit older than the first two. We're going back to May 1995 and we're going to another country. We're going to Oslo in Norway for something a bit different. And it's the case of Jennifer Fairgate or sometimes Fergate, depending on what you read. I first heard about this case on the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know if anyone else has seen it. Some of the episodes in the new Unsolved Mysteries are a bit shit for lack of a better term, but this was a really good one. I know people online say they left out a lot of information, but... I think they did a good job in the, you know, however long, 40 minutes or whatever the episode goes for. And always include it all. Yes. So try and check it out. And um, if, you, if you can watch it, it's good. It's interesting. So May 31, 1995, a woman who was fluent in both German and English checked into the Oslo Plaza Hotel at 10.44 p.m. The uh, hotel I've looked it up is now known as the Radisson Blue Plaza Hotel. This is a bit of info just to give you a, you know, a sense of what the hotel was like. They could give it a Google. Yes. Towering 37 stories above Oslo City Centre, the Radisson Blue Plaza Hotel Oslo is within walking distance of top attractions such as the Royal Palace, National Gallery and Oslo Spectrum Arena. Browse the stores or nearby Carl Johans Gate or access train, bus, tram and metro lines at Oslo Central Station right next to the hotel. It had been completed in 1989, so around six years at the time of this all happening, and was the epitome of a modern five-star hotel with 1,500 beds in 673 rooms. 
According to members of the staff, Jennifer, well, her name, yeah, we'll, we'll call her Jennifer for now, even though we haven't got to who she is yet, but Jennifer spoke English when making her initial booking. On May 31, when calling to say she would arrive later that day and she said she would be accompanied by another person. She spoke German and presumably without an accent, which is a bit of a weird comment, but I'm assuming that means like it sounded like she was a native German speaker. She wasn't, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, sometimes you can tell when someone is speaking a language that isn't their first language. Yeah. So she booked the room for three nights. She paid 1,845 kroner for each night. I did an exchange rate kind of Google now and 1,845 kroner currently equals around 222 US dollars a night. Um, she'd not give a credit card, which is very unusual for a hotel. I don't think many hotels would let you not give a guarantee credit card, even if you want to pay in cash. They did say on the Unsolved Mysteries episode that she checked in at a busy time. The hotel was used by a lot of flight attendants. And I think, you know, the last flights of the night had come in. So there must've been a ton of people in the lobby trying to check in. And maybe she just got lucky by not, maybe she promised to bring it down and they let her check in. Who knows? But anyway, maybe she- I mean, at, at the last hotel, Mary, she didn't give a credit card either. She just paid yeah. cash. Yeah. These Maybe hotels it. need to follow their rules better. <laughs> I feel like, too, a lot of these things, these policies kind of changed, especially in the USA after September 11. Like, you couldn't yeah. just book a room with cash and give a fake name anymore. You had to show your proper ID and, you know, do have a proper protocol. So maybe it was a little bit different by then. But in saying that, in this case, after this all happened, some of the staff were interviewed about the credit card. And there's, I don't want to butcher her name, so I won't say it, but there's a former Plaza Hotel receptionist. And she said, it's incomprehensible to me. We had strict routines at the hotel. It just shouldn't be possible. So it sounds like there was something funny went on there and they, she should have been given, you know, should have given a credit card and she didn't. She was allocated to room 2805 and she gave the following information when she checked in. And we've got a photo of her checking card online as well. She wrote the name Jennifer Fergate, um, F-E-R-G-A-T-E. I think when she made the book in, whoever put the book in down wrote that her name was Fairgate, F-A-I-R-G-A-T-E. So that's kind of where the two discrepancies come up. But she signed as what looks like Jennifer Fergate. Date mm-hmm. of birth, August 23, 1973. And then she's put her address. I'm probably going to butcher this, but I'll try. 0748 Rue de Lestahi. 7968 Verlaine, Verlaine, Belgium. And then she's given her phone number 32683265548. And the company that she worked for was Cerbis, C-E-R-B-I-S in Belgium. At the time when she checked in, she also put that there was a Lois Fergate checking into the same room. The receptionist said she didn't see anyone with her while checking her in, but another employee said they saw Jennifer with a man who was aged between 25 and 40 going into the room with her. But this man has never been identified. But is Lois? That way, a woman's name, or can it be both? Because when I first saw it, I assumed it was a female name. I feel like it's similar to Lewis, maybe, and mm-hmm. in European, maybe it's like a lost in translation thing. That's I what I was know. wondering. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Someone might know. Send us a message if you know. <laughs> During Jennifer's stay at the hotel, nobody recalled her exiting or entering her room except for once, which we'll talk about in a minute. A cleaner remembered entering her room and finding the room clean along with a pair of high-heeled shoes that were never located and it's believed, obviously, that someone took them. During her stay, she also attempted to contact two invalid numbers in Serang and Grace Halone in Belgium, which I feel that should be a massive clue, but I've never ever, I guess if they're invalid, what can you look into? But it does seem like she had Belgium ties, definitely. Mm-hmm. On June 2, which was a Friday, she called the reception and extended her stay until the Sunday. 
On the same day at 8.06pm, she ordered room service. The room service attendant accidentally took the room initially to 28.04 instead of 28.05, which was the room across the hall from Jennifer's room. That room was occupied by Mr. F. So remember him because we'll also talk about him soon. The mistake was cleared up and the food was delivered to the mystery woman, Jennifer. She gave a massive tip, which is what I've read online, which was 50 kroner, which is around $8. So I'm assuming the meal at the time probably wasn't that expensive. Um, So maybe $8 was a massive tip. Do they tip there? Like, isn't tipping normally just like an American thing? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I've been to Europe not for a while, to be clear, but I think most people would probably give a small tip to an attendant there as well. I don't know. I don't know if it's, I don't think it's compulsory in Europe, but um, maybe she was just, you know. Yeah, that's why it was more shocking because I'm like, that's like, that's nothing. (laughs) Um, The food was delivered at 8.23, which is very quick for room service. And this is the last time that Jennifer was seen alive by anyone. So between the Thursday and the Saturday, three attempts are made to get in touch with her via the room's TV. So, you know, when you go to a hotel and you get your little portfolio on the TV and it tells you how much you owe per night and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it asked her to come down to the reception because of missing payments, which because she clearly didn't give her credit card. The last message was sent at 7.36 p.m. on June 3, which someone in the room was confirmed to have read. So you had to say okay or confirm or whatever and push the button on the remote control. So it seems weird to me that if she called to extend her stay, why didn't they ask her to come and make payment then? Yeah, unless, I, I feel like if the hotel just did their actual job, it wasn't so lax about all of this maybe we would have more information because even they're like oh we tried to contact her three times through the tv like if you really wanted to contact her like isn't there a phone Mm. can't go up there like i don't know yeah it's very it seems like there's just a bit of a half-assed effort yeah um so the day before she died a member of the staff saw jennifer enter her room and put the do not disturb sign on the door on june 3 at 7 50 the hotel security went and knocked on her door. They became alarmed after they'd realised the Do Not Disturb sign had been on the door for a while, and this was around 14 minutes, which also seems weird to me, after the TV message about paying for the room was read by someone in the room. As soon as he knocked, he heard a gunshot. I think because he thought there was two people registered in the room, he, he might have thought there was a murder or something like that going on. He walked yeah. back down to the reception and told his manager, and they called the police. So at this point, the room is left unattended. Anyone could have come and gone. There is no CCTV available for the hallway. At 8.04pm, the security manager walked upstairs and decided to open the door a little bit and he spotted a woman laying on the bed inside the dark room. He called out and got no response and he noticed there was a sour smell. So he decided to wait outside for the police. So Oslo police arrived around 50 minutes after the first gunshot was heard or the gunshot. When they accessed the room, they found Jennifer laying on the bed. She had a single gunshot wound to the forehead and a 9mm Browning pistol in her right hand. And there are lots of photos online, so come and check them out of the actual crime scene and of the gun in her hand. So you can actually really, really get a feel for what it was like. Um, Despite there being blood splatter all the way up to the ceiling, no blood was found on her hand and nor was there any trace of gunshot residue on it, which is interesting. I read online that the door had been locked for the inside as well, as if someone had locked it after exiting the room. They found a second key card, which I guess was the one that had been allocated to Lois, and that was in the room. But it doesn't really make sense to me because she could have locked it from the inside. Like, it feels like, do you know what I mean? How you you get that it was locked by someone leaving when she could have just locked it from the inside. Yeah, or it could just lock automatically like Mm. most. I don't know. Yeah, that didn't make sense to me either. I don't get what. 
I, I put implying. it in because it's in a lot of the research that it says that it could have been locked by someone as they were exiting. But and I, if someone can clarify, that would be good because it doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah, like you can't lock a deadbolt from the outside. Mm. You can't lock one of those little chain ones from the outside. So I don't really get what else they could mean. The police discovered when they went into the room that there had been actually two shots fired. The first one seems to have been a test shot and was fired into a pillow near Jennifer's body. A burn mark on the pillow showed that it had been flipped after the shot was fired because someone had kind of turned the pillow over to have a look, I guess, to maybe see how far the bullet went through or what happened after they fired it. Um, Jennifer's body was taken for an autopsy and it was determined that her age was closer to 30. She'd given her age as 21 when she checked in. The official age range that they now put on all her, you know, documents is 25 to 35. She had short black hair and blue eyes. She was five foot three and she weighed 147 pounds. She had expensive dental work and it was done in porcelain and gold. And this was what was used in the US, Germany, Denmark and Switzerland at the time. Despite the quality of the work, no dental matches were ever made and her fingerprints didn't match anyone on record. She was also found to have no alcohol in her system, but no tests were done for drugs and no samples were taken from under her fingernails or from her vagina that might indicate defensive wounds or sexual assault. So it sounds, you can kind of get the thing here that it's kind of a bit of a half-assed investigation to start with. Things didn't seem so great in the (laughs) mid-90s. Um, there was nothing left in the hotel room that gave any clues to her identity. There was no handbag, credit cards, passports, or keys, and all of the tags in her clothes had been removed. I did read some comments that some of the tags had been kind of picked very neatly, like you know you can unpick the stitching, so that and the other some of the others had just been really crudely ripped out or cut out. So it's almost like two different people did it. But I don't know if I believe mm-hmm. that. I think maybe she just had more time at one point than. You know, maybe she didn't have as much when she was getting rid of the other tags. Yeah. Her only personal belonging was a man's perfume, which is Ungaro Paul Lahom number one, and all the victims on it belonged. Oh, sorry, all the victims, all, all the, the fingerprints, <laughs> all the fingerprints on it belonged to her. So the actual confirmed inventory of her items were a black brawn buffle attaché case, the cologne, turquoise green travel bag, one blouse, four bras, long silk underwear, stockings, high heeled heel high-heeled shoes, four jackets, a gold ring, and a Citizen Aqualand diving watch. The Doe Network page for this lady goes into some more detail. They said um, she had that her all her clothing was made in Italy. Or It says black clothing, long blouse, bra, long silk underwear, stockings, and high-heeled shoes made in Italy. So maybe just the shoes were made in Italy. Three light-coloured bras were located, four jackets. One was black and leather. Another one was light-coloured wool. All but one label from the clothing had been removed. This is another one where, like, it doesn't make sense because, like, she has four bras but one blouse and it doesn't really mention any pants or anything yeah, or skirts or dresses. She has stockings, though, and high heels. I'm fairly sure when she was found she was wearing a skirt, um, so maybe that explains why there was nothing else. But, yeah, it seems like an odd ratio of things to pack. Yeah, like, why are you going to have four bras like yeah you can can tell me someone wears a new bra every single day like don't lie to us we don't need four we'll get into it in a minute because there's apparently another bag that is missing so that might explain where the rest of her stuff anyway um she was wearing a gold ring on her right middle finger and the citizen aqualand watch had three 370 batteries which were manufactured in late 1994 and marked with w395 the etching was possibly done by the person who changed the batteries and the watch was manufactured around 1992. 
They also started to look into the details she left upon check-in. She claimed to live on a street called Rue de la Stade, or I don't know how you say it, in the village of Verlaine, Belgium. <laughs> However, no such street exists, nor is the area code she wrote down the correct one. There were also no companies in Belgium named Service, which is who she said she worked for. There was a plastic newspaper bag containing an edition of USA in the room. The bag was addressed to room 2816, which was op- on the opposite end of the hallway from her room. They found a fingerprint on the bag, but they couldn't identify who it was from. I guess that, that fingerprint could have been from anyone. The person who put the bag, you know, when you go to the hotel and they put the bag on the door with the newspaper. So could have been from that person, could have been from her. It's funny that, well, I don't know if this was mentioned, but I don't think it was. Like, it's funny that they could find a fingerprint on that, but they didn't, like, check the gun for fingerprints. Like, did they say that or no? Well, I think they've said that a lot of it, are, yeah, it doesn't, they haven't really ever said about the fingerprints, but they've said that the gun was, um, which I'll get into in a minute too, put into acid, they think, to kind of destroy the distinguishing characteristics of it. Mm. So anyway. So, sorry, in relation to those fingerprints, they did a recent international search was submitted through Interpol to see if they could match it to anyone, but I haven't been able to see if anyone, you know, has been identified or if anything came from this. Police also looked at data from the electronic hotel key card that she used. So, you know, you can tell when someone enters a room, you can't tell when someone leaves the room, but you can tell the hours that they've opened the door. And mm-hmm. they've determined that she was not present in the room between 12.34am on June 1 and 8.50am on June 2. This is another thing I find a little bit interesting because if she did have someone else with her, she could have been in the room, but maybe I guess they've That's done this. That's what I was thinking too. They've done this by the because the the room was serviced, which wasn't in Mary's case. So maybe you know when the cleaners went in, it was between these times, and they've kind of just deduced that she wasn't there. Yeah, I guess if you look at everything together, maybe it's easier to tell that like she wasn't rather in than there. just yeah, rather than just the key card actual data. Yeah. So the gun used was a 1990 or 91 9mm Browning produced in Herstal, Belgium, which is another Belgium tire. It only had a partial serial, num- serial number, and some online reports that I've read say that it had been dissolved in acid. Um, also found at the scene was a briefcase containing nothing but 25 bullets. Another seven bullets were found in the guns magazine. So, a lot of guns, a lot of bullets. One gun, but a lot of bullets. <laughs> yeah, which again, she has a lot of off ratios here. That missing bag, it's got all the guns and all her pants. <laughs> Housekeepers who had cleaned her room observed that there was a single duvet on the bed. At the time of her death, though, two duvets were present. So, you know, they put one in the cupboard, I guess, if you get cold. And I've Uh read comments that say basically it was kind of a weird, heavy type thing um, that they wouldn't, like that no guests usually kind of fix or make the bed themselves. They just throw it around. But there was only one at the time of her, one when they serviced the room and two at the time of her death. The investigators failed to retrieve any hairs or fluids from the bed and the bedding, and it was all thrown away the next day. So that was a good investigation. (laughs) Um, The room service that she ordered was called a hot bite, which was bratwurst and potato salad. So it was uh, delivered to her room the night before she died, and the room service attendant who took it in remembers seeing a trolley suitcase in the room, which that made them think that Jennifer may have been a flight attendant. But no suitcase like that was found in the room after her death. And one housekeeper also mentioned seeing a particularly nice pair of shoes in the closet when she cleaned the room on Thursday. After Jennifer's death, the only pair of shoes found in the room were the ones she was wearing, and the housekeeper was certain that it wasn't the same pair that she had seen earlier. So it seems like either they're remembering incorrectly or maybe there is a bag and some contents missing. I feel like they're remembering incorrectly, maybe. 
Yeah, I don't know. Seems weird that you would remember. Maybe they really loved the shoes, but imagine how many rooms you clean. You, how could you even remember? I feel like they would remember the shoes more than they would remember a suitcase. suitcase. Like how many do they see? Yeah, but who anyway. knows? I just have a bad memory. That's why I'm always like, <laughs> they don't remember that. <laughs> So frustratingly for us now, records for other hotel guests were destroyed in 2010. Online comments, though, do discuss a man who was in room 2804, directly opposite Jennifer's room. This is the man who we spoke about earlier who her sausages and potato salad was accidentally delivered to. Right. The, the man claimed to be from Belgium and he checked in on June 2. They call him Mr. F in all the online things, so I don't know if they actually know his last name and just haven't identified him or... Why they've given so him that? How he checked that. into the hotel? They they don't care apparently. Just Mr. <laughs> F. He told authorities that had been told that Jennifer, which I'm assuming he just said a woman, had been found dead, and was asked if he had seen anything suspicious. However, Mr. F checked out on June three, which was before she was found dead. There's a journalist named Lars Wegner who tracked him down and interviewed him. And he said, I remember it well because they asked me about it at the front desk when I checked out. Someone asked if I had heard or seen anything since it was the same corridor, but I slept well that night and know nothing about it. And then the journalist asked Mr. F to confirm the day he left. He said, I stayed there from Friday to Saturday. When I checked out, they told me about the lady who died. And the journalist calls him out and said, but this is very strange. You checked out of the hotel on Saturday but the young mo- Saturday morning, but the young woman didn't die till Saturday night, almost 12 hours later. I don't see how they could ask you about the death when the woman wasn't dead yet. And he said, I don't know anything about that. I just remember they asked me. That's all I know. Hmm. So that seems very unusual. That seems like a really big red flag or that he's just like a weirdo trying to insert himself for attention. And that also he's from Belgium. Like I know, you know, this is kind of an international hotel, but it's so weird that one person from Belgium is kind of tied to this lady who also seems to be from Belgium and knows about her death before it happened. So anyway, the other thing that I find kind of weird is that in the autopsy, the coroner determined that she'd eaten the room service food more than 24 hours after she'd order it. So I don't know if there was a fridge in the room. I hope there was because I hope she, I guess if she's going to kill herself, she doesn't care if she gets food poisoning. But Imagine, you know, just 24-hour-old 24 24 hour hotel food wouldn't be very pleasant. And why no, didn't she straight away when she ordered it? Maybe Especially because it was bratwurst. Mm. Not really something you could, like, leave out. Anyway, so the investigation was pretty shitty anyway, and she was buried in an anonymous grave at the Vestra Gravlund Cemetery. The cave, case went cold for many years, but in 2016 she was exhumed to secure DNA Uh, Blood samples, along with much of the other evidence, had, surprise, surprise, been thrown away in 1996. They took samples of both teeth and bones, and they obtained a complete DNA profile. They sent it away, um, and the samples confirmed that she was most likely European, and there was a study of her teeth by randomly someone in Australia, which is random, narrowed the area where she lived to Germany. Yet further analysis, this time by Professor Druid in Stockholm, suggested the woman was born in 1971 and was aged 24 at the time of her death. And they gave a small margin of error of that of 1.1 years. So she could have either been 23, 24, or 25, essentially. I'm glad they finally decided to care however many years later. And I do wonder why stuff. maybe people just public interest kind of pushed it along. Yeah. Because essentially these people have nothing, the police have nothing to gain by investigating these cases. It doesn't matter to them. You know, it's not something that they need to solve. So, good publicity. Yes. So, when I was researching this, I found that many people have drawn comparisons between Jennifer and Norway's most famous doe, who's called the Isdal woman. 
There's a really good article on this from medium.com. I'll link it on the blog. And this info comes from that. It says the Isdale Doe is a mysterious woman who died after being set on fire at Bergen on November 29, 1970. So this is a fair while before Jennifer died. Police at the time judged the matter to be suicide, yet details such as missing clothes tags meant the mystery lingered. The possibility that the security services were involved has always seemed likely, and neither police nor the public have identified the woman. It says, like Jennifer, the Isdar woman consistently gave her nationality as Belgium when she was actually German and she was raised in French-speaking Belgium. The Oslo woman had expensive gold and porcelain worked on her, on her teeth, while the Isdar woman had unique gold filling dental work. Could it be that the woman in room 2805 was deliberately trying to make her suicide echo the Isdar woman? So that would be, you know, that could explain if she was doing that, why she, you know, put the address as Belgium and the company as Belgium kind of imitating that. I don't know. I don't know what I think about that theory. I think the theories are a bit wishy-washy like anyone could have expensive dental work and things a like lot that. of I, dental work is just expensive <laughs> yeah and i'm sure a lot of it at the time was the same procedures so yeah um in this case though what's different to the other two is that there are some kind of different theories out there some people believe that jennifer was a secret agent and that she was murdered for something she knew so this is kind of why she was covering up her real identity and maybe she had all the bullets and whatever else. There's a Norwegian intelligence operative called Ola Kaldaga, and he believes that that she may have been a secret agent. I don't know if I believe that. Could be, and I guess that's why no one's looking for her and why she managed to kind of hide all these years. But Bullets thing is so weird. The what? The bullet? Yeah, the bullets thing, having the bullets in the suitcases. And I, I, I feel like I do believe that maybe Mr. F or someone knows more about this which maybe leads to it not being just a simple suicide kind of like the other two um because i don't if, think if she it, suicide if it is true about the bags and then also about her not having any gunshot residue and like when you look at the photo of the gun in her hand it looks like a really unnatural thing like it looks it does look like someone has put the gun in her hand after yeah but i don't know i guess stranger things have happened than this just being a normal suicide yeah i don't think that it's suicide, and I think it should have been really easy for them to tell. I, like, I don't know how much, um, like, technology and all that has advanced since between then and now, but can't you tell when it's, like, a self-inflicted gunshot wound? And if you kill, if you shoot yourself in the head, you're 100% going to have gun residue on your hands if you shoot yourself in the head. The only thing that leads me to think maybe it was a suicide is the two gunshots, so... Like if someone was murdering her, maybe she, I don't. I don't think she would have been tied up because whoever, if if it was a murder, whoever did that would have had to leave so quickly. And what was the guarantee that someone wouldn't have been waiting outside the door for the police? Yeah, you know, maybe like I, I feel like there's a lot of risks that the person would have taken to murder her after the knock on the door. I mean, fair enough if he just murdered her any time, which I guess also could have happened. But then it's just a risky thing to murder someone on the twenty seventh floor and just be able to assume that you're just going to be able to walk out the door because there's no CTV and no one will be waiting there. It just seems like a risky... Maybe the the gunshot and the pillow was like just a, a warning shot to scare her. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Uh, the whole thing's really weird. The other theories that I've read online include her being a flight attendant, which seems a bit weird because I'm sure there would have been some other way to identify her if that was the case, that she was a high-end yeah. prostitute, also could have been true, participant in a major drug operation or an assassin. I guess the bullets would make the assassin thing a bit believable. I mean, I don't think 
her as a 24 year old female was an assassin but no and also i'd find out hard that a 24 year old would be a secret agent who is that's what so i was thinking too wanted but maybe maybe i guess they need secret agents of all types maybe she was just just into some shady shit yeah i don't know i'm i'm on the fence with this one i even though i know it seems that there are some things missing um I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a suicide. I know it seems strange, but maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's an explanation for the no gunshot residue. I don't know. Who shoots themselves in the forehead? Isn't that what it said? Yeah, forehead. I think that'd be an uncomfortable way to shoot yourself in the forehead. I guess if you're lying on the bed or even, I guess not. If you're even sitting on the bed, you could just do it straight in the front. I I feel like this is a 50-50 for me. 50% suicide, 50% murder. Hmm. What do you think? I think murder. <laughs> and you, usually I'm the one to be like, no, nah, they killed themselves. But There's, there's so know. much information on this. There's some really good articles that I'll link in the blog and they've got tons and tons of footage and videos of the, uh, not videos, photos of the crime scene and of her life and her belongings. And so this is a really good one if you want to go down the rabbit hole and investigate yourself. I'll put all the info on the blog so you can check it out. But um, it's a very, it's always fascinating me. I thought this before and then I forgot. It seems like she was definitely like waiting for someone or something because she called those two numbers that didn't go anywhere and then she extended her stay. So it's like, was she waiting for someone to meet her? Like, yeah, it seems weird. And like she like said that it was going to be two people, but then it never was. And but then the other person said that they, they did see someone going into the room with her. Maybe some random <sighs> did meet her and killed her. I wonder, I've never ever seen either the distinction if there was two key cards. I'm sure that each was kind of coded separately. So I've never seen that the other card was used. It's always just been that her card was used. So may, yeah, maybe that does point to she was waiting for someone who never showed up. Yeah. Mm. So I know like if, if I ever go to a hotel and I like, give me two keys, you know, one for me and one for my husband, I just leave one in the room if I only need one. Like I only, you know, I usually have my key that I just keep on me. Um, yeah, same. You don't usually. I feel like they usually give you two. Yeah. So that's that's it for Jennifer. It's an interesting one. I don't know. Hopefully something will come of this kind of new push into her case from Unsolved Mysteries and all the people looking into it, fingers crossed. Yeah, that would be good. Hmm. They need to get um, a, a GoFundMe going like the other cases. <laughs> I don't know if GoFundMe is a thing in Norway, maybe. I don't know. But I'll once we put this episode out, I'll put – some polls or some things in our Instagram story because I want to know what everyone thinks. So be sure to check that out and let us know what you think in our little polls. Yep. And if you don't follow us on Instagram, there's that's more incentive to do so. So you could tell us your opinion. Everyone loves giving their opinion. So go do that. And like Olivia said before, we'll have our blog up on this once the episode is out and that'll have any of the photos and all the information if you want to read more about it at truecrimesocietyblog.com. And, of course, there's our forum if you want to chat with people about it at truecrimesociety.com. Yes. Um, I think next week, well, well, not next week, or next episode, I'm almost done with the one about Josh Duggar and the Duggars because I know some people are interested in that. So maybe we will do that one. But who knows? You know, mm-hmm. times always change. I think interesting might come up in the meantime. More interesting. <laughs> Yeah, or I might get might get lazy and not finish it. Who knows? <laughs> Only time will tell. But that is that, right? That's it. Thanks everyone in advance for the kind reviews that I know will be coming soon. <laughs> oh yes. Yes, thank you. Bye.